Part Four of It Could Be Anything by Keith Lomer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Four. The tunnel curved left, then right, dipped, then angled up. Brett crawled steadily, the smooth, stiff clay yielding and cold against his hands and sodden knees. Another smaller tunnel joined from the left. Another angled in from above. The tunnel widened to three feet, then four. Brett got to his feet, walked in a crouch. Here and there, barely visible in the near darkness, objects lay embedded in the mud. A silver-plated spoon, its handle bent. The rusted engine of an electric train, a portable radio, green with corrosion from burst batteries. At a distance, Brett estimated, of a hundred yards from the pit, the tunnel opened into a vast cave, green-lit from tiny disks of frosted glass set in the ceiling far above. A row of discolored concrete piles, the foundations of the building above, protruded against the near wall, their surfaces nibbled and pitted. Between Brett and the concrete columns, the floor was littered with pale sticks and stones, gleaming dully in the gloom. Brett started across the floor. One of the sticks snapped underfoot. He kicked a melon-sized stone. It rolled lightly, came to rest, with hollow eyes staring up toward him. A human skull. The floor of the cave covered an area the size of a city block. It was blanketed with human bones, with here and there a small cat skeleton, or the fanged snout bones of a dog. There was a constant rustling of rats that played among the rib cages, sat atop crania, scuttled behind shin bones. Brett picked his way, stepping over imitation pearl necklaces, zircon rings, plastic buttons, hearing aids, lipsticks, compacts, corset stays, prosthetic devices, rubber heels, wrist watches, lapel watches, pocket watches with corroded brass chains. Ahead, Brett saw a patch of color, a blur of pale yellow. He hurried, stumbling over bone heaps, crunching eyeglasses underfoot. He reached the still figure where it lay slackly, face down. Gingerly, he squatted, turned it on its back. It was to Hoover. Brett slapped the cold wrists, rubbed the clammy hands. Dehuva stirred, moaned weakly. Brett pulled him to a sitting position. Wake up, he whispered. Wake up. Dehuva's eyelids fluttered. He blinked dully at Brett. The gels may turn up any minute, Brett hissed. We have to get away from here. Can you walk? I saw it, said Dehuva faintly. But it moved so fast. You're safe here for the moment, Brett said. There are none of them around, but they may be back. We've got to find a way out. Dehuva started up, staring around. Where am I? he said hoarsely. Brett seized his arm, steadied him on his feet. We're in a hollowed-out cave, he said. The whole city is undermined with them. They're connected by tunnels. We have to find one leading back to the surface. Dehuva gazed around at the acres of bones. It left me here for dead. 
are to die, said Brett. Look at them, Tahuva breathed. Hundreds, thousands. The whole population, it looks like. The gels must have whisked them down here one by one. But why? For interfering with the scenes. But that doesn't matter now. What matters is getting out. Come on, I see tunnels on the other side. They crossed the broad floor, around them the white bones, the rustle of rats. They reached the far side of the cave, picked a six-foot tunnel which trended upward, a trickle of water seeping out of the dark mouth. They started up the slope. We have to have a weapon against the gels, said Brett. Why? I don't want to fight them. Dehoofa's voice was thin, frightened. I want to get away from here. Even back to Waverley. I'd rather face the Duke. This was a real town, once, said Brett. The gels have taken it over, hollowed out the buildings, mined the earth under it, killed off the people, and put imitation people in their place. And nobody ever knew. I met a man who's lived here all his life. He doesn't know. But we know. And we have to do something about it. It's not our business. I've had enough. I want to get away. The gels must stay down below, somewhere in that maze of tunnels. For some reason they try to keep up appearances, but only for the people who belong here. They play out scenes for the fat man wherever he goes. And he never goes anywhere he isn't expected to. We'll get over the wall somehow, said Dehuva. We may starve crossing the dry fields, but that's better than this. They emerged from the tunnel into a coal bin, crossed to a sagging door, found themselves in a boiler room. Stairs led to sunlight. In the street, in the shadow of tall buildings, a boxy sedan was parked at the curb. Brett went to it, tried the door. It opened. Keys dangled from the ignition switch. He slid into the dusty seat. Behind him there was a hoarse scream. Brett looked up. Through the streaked windshield he saw a mighty gel rear up before Dehuva, who crouched back against the blackened brick front of the building. "'Don't move, Dehuva!' Brett shouted. Dehuva stood frozen, flattened against the wall. The gel towered, its surface rippling. Brett eased from the seat. He stood on the pavement fifteen feet from the gel. The rank gel odor came in waves from the creature. Beyond it he could see Dehuva's white, terrified face. Silently, Brett turned the latch of the old-fashioned auto-hood, raised it, the copper fuel line curved down from the firewall to a glass sediment cup. The knurled retaining screw turned easily. The cup dropped into Brett's hand. Gasoline ran down in an amber stream. Brett pulled off his damp coat, wadded it, jammed it under the flow. Over his shoulder he saw Dehuva, still rigid, and the gel hovering, uncertain. The coat was saturated with gasoline now. Brett fumbled a matchbox from his pocket. Wet. He threw the sodden container aside. The battery caught his eye, clamped in a rusted frame under the hood. 
He jerked the pistol from its holster, used it to short the terminals. Tiny blue sparks jumped. He jammed the coat near, rasped the gun against the soft lead poles. With a whoosh, the coat caught. Yellow flames leaped, soot-rimmed. Brett snatched at a sleeve, whirled the coat high. The great gel, attracted by the sudden motion, rushed at him. He flung the blazing garment over the monster, leaped aside. The creature went mad. It slumped, lashed itself against the pavement. The burning coat was thrown clear. The gel threw itself across the pavement into the gutter, sending a splatter of filthy water over Brett. From the corner of his eye, Brett saw Dehuva seize the burning coat, hurl it into the pooled gasoline in the gutter. Fire leaped twenty feet high. In its center, the great gel bucked and writhed. The ancient car shuddered as the frantic monster struck it. Black smoke boiled up, and an unbelievable stench came to Brett's nostrils. He backed, coughing. Flames roared around the front of the car. Paint blistered and burned. A tire burst. In a final frenzy, the gel whipped clear, lay, a great blackened shape of melting rubber, twitching, then still. "'They've tunneled under everything,' Brett said. They've cut through power lines and water lines, concrete, steel, earth. They've left the shell, shored up with spidery-looking trusswork. Somehow they've kept water and power flowing to wherever they needed it. I don't care about your theories, Dehuva said. I only want to get away. It's bound to work, Dehuva. I need your help. No. Then I'll have to try alone. He turned away. Wait, Dehua called. He came up to Brett. I owe you a life. You saved mine. I can't let you down now. But if this doesn't work, or if you can't find what you want, then we'll go. Together they turned down a side street, walking rapidly. At the corner, Brett pointed. There's one. They crossed to the service station at a run. Brett tried the door, locked. He kicked at it, splintered the wood around the lock. He glanced around inside. No good, he called. Try the next building. I'll check the one behind. He crossed the wide drive, battered in a door, looked in at a floor covered with wood shavings. It ended ten feet from the door. Brett went to the edge, looked down. Diagonally, forty feet away, the underground fifty-thousand-gallon storage tank, which supplied the gasoline pumps of the station, perched, isolated, on a column of striated clay ribbed with chitinous gel buttresses. The truncated feed lines ended six feet from the tank. From Brett's position, it was impossible to say whether the ends were plugged. Across the dark cavern, a square of light appeared. Dehuva stood in a doorway looking toward Brett. Over here, Dehuva! Brett uncoiled his rope, arranged a slip noose. He measured the distance with his eye, tossed the loop. It slapped the top of the tank, caught on a massive fitting. He smashed the glass from a window, tied the end of the rope to the center post. Dehuva arrived, watched as Brett went to the edge hooked his legs over the rope and started across to the tank. It was an easy crossing. 
Brett's feet clanged against the tank. He straddled the six-foot cylinder, worked his way to the end, then clambered down to the two-inch feed lines. He tested their resilience, then lay flat, eased out on them. There were plugs of hard, waxy material in the cut ends of the pipe. Brett poked at them with a pistol. Chunks loosened and fell. He worked for fifteen minutes before the first trickle came. Two minutes later, two thick streams of gasoline were pouring down into the darkness. Brett and Dehuva piled sticks, scraps of paper, shavings, and lumps of coal around a core of gasoline-soaked rags. Directly above the heaped tender, a taut rope stretched from the window post to a child's wagon, the steel bed of which contained a second heap of combustibles. The wagon hung half over the ragged edge of the floor. It should take about fifteen minutes for the fire to burn through the rope, Brett said. Then the wagon will fall and dump the hot coals in the gasoline. By then it will have spread all over the surface and flowed down side tunnels into other parts of the cavern system. But it may not get them all. It will get some of them. It's the best we can do right now. You get the fire going in the wagon. I'll start this one up. Dehuva sniffed the air. That fluid, he said. We know it in Waverley as phosgetonium. The wealthy use it for cooking. We'll use it to cook gels. Brett struck a match. The fire leaped up, smoking. Dehuva watched, struck his match awkwardly, started his blaze. They stood for a moment watching. The nylon curled and blackened, melting in the heat. We'd better get moving, Brett said. It doesn't look as though it will last fifteen minutes. They stepped out into the street. Behind them, wisps of smoke curled from the door. Dehuva seized Brett's arm. Look! Half a block away, the fat man in the Panama hat strode toward them at the head of a group of men in gray flannel. That's him! the fat man shouted. The one I told you about! I knew the scoundrel would be back. He slowed, eyeing Brett and Dehuva warily. You'd better get away from here fast, Brett called. There'll be an explosion in a few minutes. Smoke, the fat man yelped. Fire! They've set fire to the city. There it is, pouring out of the window and the door. He started forward. Brett yanked the pistol from the holster, thumbed back the hammer. Stop right there. He barked. For your own good, I'm telling you to run. I don't care about that crowd of golems you've collected, but I'd hate to see a real human get hurt, even a cowardly one like you. These are honest citizens, the fat man gasped, standing, staring at the gun. You won't get away with this. We all know you. You'll be dealt with. We're going now, and you're going too. You can't kill us all, the fat man said. He licked his lips. We won't let you destroy our city. As the fat man turned to exhort his followers, Brett fired once, twice, three times. Three golems fell on their faces. The fat man whirled. Devil! he shrieked. A killer is abroad. He charged, mouth open. Brett ducked aside, tripped the fat man, 
He fell heavily, slamming his face against the pavement. The golems surged forward. Brett and Dehuva slammed punches to the sternum, took clumsy blows on the shoulder, back, chest. Golems fell. Brett ducked a wild swing, toppled his attacker, turned to see Dehuva deal with the last of the dummies. The fat man sat in the street, dabbing at his bleeding nose, the Panama still in place. Get up, Brett commanded. There's no time left. You've killed him, killed him all. The fat man got to his feet, then turned suddenly and plunged for the door from which a cloud of smoke poured. Brett hauled him back. He and Dehuva started off, dragging the struggling man between them. They had gone a block when their prisoner, with a sudden frantic jerk, freed himself, set off at a run for the fire. "'Let him go!' Dehuva cried. "'It's too late to go back!' The fat man leaped fallen golems, wrestled with the door, disappeared into the smoke. Brett and Dehuva sprinted for the corner. As they rounded it, a tremendous blast shook the street. The pavement before them quivered, opened in a wide crack. A ten-foot section dropped from view. They skirted the gaping hole, dashed for safety as the facades across the street cracked, fell in clouds of dust. The street trembled under a second explosion. Cracks opened, dust rising in puffs from the long, wavering lines. Masonry collapsed around them. They put their heads down and ran. Winded, Brett and Dehuva walked through the empty streets of the city. Behind them, smoke blackened the sky. Embers floated down around them. The odor of burning gel was carried on the wind. The late sun shone on the blank pavement. A lone golem in a tasseled fez, left over from the morning's parade, leaned stiffly against the lamppost, eyes blank. Empty cars sat in driveways. TV antennas stood forlornly against the sunset. This place looks lived in, said Brett, indicating an open apartment window with a curtain billowing above a potted geranium. I'll take a look. He came back, shaking his head. They were all in the TV room. They looked so natural at first. I mean, they didn't look up or anything when I walked in. I turned the set off. The electricity is still working, anyway. Wonder how long it will last. They turned down a residential street. Underfoot the pavement trembled at a distant blast. They skirted a crack, kept going. Occasionally, golems stood in awkward poses or lay across sidewalks. One, clad in black, tilted awkwardly in a gothic entry of fretted stonework. "'I guess there won't be any church this Sunday,' said Brett. He halted before a brown brick apartment house. An untended hose welled on a patch of sickly lawn. Brett went to the door, stood listening, then went in. Across the room, the still figure of a woman sat in a rocker. A curl stirred on her smooth forehead. A flicker of expression seemed to cross the lined face. Brett started forward. Don't be afraid. You can come with us. He stopped. A flapping window shade cast restless shadows on the still golem features on which dust was already settling. Brett turned away, shaking his head. All of them, 
he said. It's as though they were snipped out of paper. When the gels died, their dummies died with them. Why? asked Dehuva. What does it all mean? Mean? said Brett. He shook his head, starting off again along the street. It doesn't mean anything. It's just the way things are. Brett sat in a deserted Cadillac, tuning the radio. "'Anybody hear me?' said a plaintive voice from the speaker. "'This is Abe Glorian at the Twin Spires. Looks like I'm the only one left alive. Can anybody hear me?' Brett tuned. "'Been asking the wrong questions, looking for the final fact. Now these are strange matters, brothers.' But if a flower blooms, what man shall ask why? What lore do we seek in a symphony? He twisted the knob again. Kansas City, not more than half a dozen of us, and the dead, piled all over the place. But it's a funny thing. Doc Potter started to do an autopsy. Brett turned the knob. CQ, CQ, CQ. This is Hollipquate calling CQ, CQ. There's been a disaster here at Port Wonderlust. We need... Take Jesus into your hearts, another station urged. Mm, to base, the radio said faintly with much crackling. Lunar observatory to base. Come in, lunar control. This is Commander McVie of the detachment soul survivor hello hollipquate hollipquate this is kansas city calling say where did you say you were calling from it looks as though both of us had a lot of mistaken ideas about the world outside said brett most of these stations sound as though they might as well be coming from mars i don't understand where the voices come from dehuva said but all the places they name are strange to me, except the Twin Spires. I've heard of Kansas City, Brett said, but none of the other ones. The ground trembled. A low rumble rolled. Another one, Brett said. He switched off the radio, tried the starter. It groaned, turned over. The engine caught, sputtered, then ran smoothly. Get in, Hoover. We might as well ride. Which way do we go to get out of this place? The wall lies in that direction, said Hoover. but I don't know about a gate. <laughs> we'll worry about that when we get to it, said Brett. This whole place is going to collapse before long. We really started something. I suppose other underground storage tanks caught, and gas lines, too. A building ahead cracked fell in a heap of pulverized plaster. The car bucked as a blast sent a ripple down the street. A manhole cover popped up, clattered a few feet, dropped from sight. Brett swerved, gunned the car. It leaped over rubble, roared along the littered pavement. Brett looked in the rearview mirror. A block behind them the street ended. Smoke and dust rose from the immense pit. We just missed it that time, he called. How far to the wall? Not far. Turn here. Brett rounded the corner with a shrieking of tires. Ahead, the gray wall rose up, blank, featureless. This is a dead end, 
Brett shouted. We'd better get out and run for it. No time. I'm going to ram the wall. Maybe I can knock a hole in it. Dehuva crouched, teeth gritted. Brett held the accelerator to the floor, roared straight toward the wall. The heavy car shot across the last few yards, struck, and burst through a curtain of canvas into a field of dry stalks. Brett steered the car in a wide curve to halt and look back. A blackened Panama hat floated down, settled among the stalks. Smoke poured up in a dense cloud from behind the canvas wall. A fetid stench pervaded the air. That finishes that, I guess, Brett said. I don't know. Look there. Brett turned. Far across the dry field, columns of smoke rose from the ground. The whole thing's undermined, Brett said. How far does it go? No telling, but we'd better be off. Perhaps we can get beyond the edge of it. Not that it matters. We're all that's left. You sound like the fat man, Brett said. But why should we be so surprised to find out the truth? After all, we never saw it before. All we knew, or thought we knew, was what they told us. The moon, the other side of the world, a distant city, or even the next town. How do we really know what's there unless we go and see for ourselves? Does a goldfish in his bowl know what the ocean is like? Where did they come from, these gels? How much of the world have they undermined? What about Waverley? Is it Golem country too? The Duke and all the people I knew? I don't know, Dehuva. I've been wondering about the people in Casperton, like Doc Welch. I used to see him in the street with his little black bag. I always thought it was full of pills and scalpels. But maybe it really had zebra's tails and toad's eyes in it. Maybe he's really a magician on his way to cast spells against demons. Maybe the people I used to see hurrying to catch the bus every morning weren't really going to the office. Maybe they go down into caves and chip away at the foundations of things. Maybe they go up on rooftops and put on rainbow-colored robes and fly away. I used to pass by a bank in Casperton, a big gray stone building with little curtains over the bottom half of the windows. I never go in there. I don't have anything to do in a bank. I've always thought it was full of bankers, banking. Now... I don't know. It could be anything. That's why I'm afraid, Dehuva said. It could be anything. Things aren't really any different than they were, said Brett, except that now we know. He turned the big car out across the field toward Casperton. I don't know what we'll find when we get back. Aunt Hasey, Pretty Lee... But there's only one way to find out. The moon rose as the car bumped westward, raising a trail of dust against the luminous sky of evening. End of It Could Be Anything by Keith Lummer This story read by Phil Chenevere